You know, something about getting toward the end of a, a long journey that's kind of exciting, right? You know, you're on a long car trip and you finally get to your exit. Feels good, doesn't it? How many of you like me, you like counting the mile markers and you're doing the math, like how many? Anybody else? That's, that's me. That's totally me, right? Yeah, or, um, you know, some of you have run in long races and you turn the corner and you see the finish line. Oh my goodness, that's a good feeling, right? Some of you have taken long bicycle rides, Bath Peltonia, it's nicely done by the way. And uh, it's really nice when you get around there to the end, isn't it? <laughs> Your legs are saying thank you. Some of you, you've graduated from stuff. You've, you know, maybe a degree or a certification or something. Something you worked on for a long time. And, you know, I'm talking about that feeling just before you're done, where you're going, yeah, this is nice. This is good. That's how I feel with the Through the Bible series that we're in now. Uh, for the last, uh, actually, just to be clear, I started this series on February 8th, 2015, with a message in, from Genesis entitled, In the Beginning. How appropriate, right? And so we've been off and on, plotting our way through the Bible, looking at one book or a couple books, if there's a one or two, three in front of them, together, and just trying to get an overview sense of what this Bible is about. Today, we are all the way to the New Testament books of First and Second Peter, meaning we only got three more stops on this trip, you guys. There's only three more exits, right? So we got First, Second, Third John next week, then Jude the following week, Lord willing, of course, and then Revelation, which I'll just pack into one message. All right, it'll be fantastic. So today we're in First and Second Peter together. Would you go ahead and if you have a Bible and find your way to that, and let's invite the Lord to come to this really special part of our gathering, Lord. We do invite you to come. Father, come. Holy Spirit, move on your word. This book gets older every day. This Bible gets older every day, and this culture just seems to shift further and further away from it, Lord. It's, it's just increasingly challenging to bridge the gap between the truth of what you said with the truth of what you want to say to us now. So I need you, Lord. I need you to come and to bear the weight of this word, the point of this spear, and, uh, and to bring it to us, God. Nobody needs more information. We've we got a lot of information, and we can get it at a the click of a mouse, the touch of a screen, Lord. What we need is you. What we're thirsty for. So would you come in the bringing of this teaching and, and visit us, God, in the midst of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we've been doing in the series, we start with context because the context of a passage, is, of course, is as important as the passage itself. The context of First and Second Peter, I think, has four major stops. And the first one is that it might have been written by Peter. <laughs> might have been written by Peter. There's actually enormous debate about whether Peter actually wrote First and Second Peter. Uh, enormous debate. Probably the most debated book in the New Testament as far as uh, true authorship is concerned. 
that argument, that, that conversation, has increased substantially over the past few centuries. In the 17th century, there was a Dutch philosopher named Benedict Spinoza who started um, looking at the Bible and encouraging people to look at the Bible as we look at other ancient texts. And it developed a field of study called biblical criticism. That's not meant to be negative, but a higher criticism, textual criticism. And applying the same rules of interpretation to the Bible as you would some ancient text from Greek mythology or something like that, just to try to see what comes from it. And um, that, has, that just launched a, a, a rather um, uh, 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 kind of open season on, on the truthfulness of the Bible over the last few hundred years. And um, uh, there was probably one good thing that came out of the whole textual criticism or higher criticism move was um, the, that we should always consider context. And that was something that wasn't being done largely by the church. They were reading the Bible and kind of ignoring what was around it and arriving at all kinds of varying inter- interpretations, as you can imagine, right? And so with this rise, then it, it, it really became questionable as to the authorship of these two books. Did Peter really write those, or were they assigned, was they assigned to him uh, by some of the early church fathers? Well, with textual criticism, uh, while there are a couple of good things that come from it, the, the thing that, that higher criticism overlooks is that the Bible is unique as literature. It's unique because at the end of the day, God is the author. And that's a, that's a statement of faith on our part, that part of our faith is that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And so whether Peter's name is at the top or Paul's or John's is substantially less relevant to the whole thing that through all of it, God's name is at the top. Am I right? And that's the, that's the feature of analysis that biblical criticism sets aside, and it is the most important part, from, from my perspective, of how to interpret the Bible, is that this is God's Word, God speaking a message to us. This was written to believers scattered throughout Asia Minor. Specifically, the group of churches listed there are in a, in a boundary of what we call now modern-day Turkey, but it was areas in which Paul and Peter and John had significant ministry, and so really it could be very likely that Peter actually wrote this. It was written between 60 and 64 AD. Now, this would have been really close to when Peter himself was, was executed for his faith. And I don't know if everyone knows this, but uh, extra-biblical sources tell us that when Peter was, was crucified by the Romans for his faith, that he considered being crucified like Jesus was, he considered himself not worthy, and so he asked, and he was granted his request, that he was cru- executed upside down, that he was, his feet were nailed to the top of the cross, and then his hands nailed, actually would be over his head, and that's how he gave his life for Christ. This was during a time of Neronian persecution. Nero was the emperor. Nero was particularly hateful 
toward Christians, and he engendered a popular attitude among Romans toward Christians that was very negative. And it was negative on three counts. Here's how, here, here, here's how he conveyed Christians to the Roman population. First, they were atheists. So Christians were considered to be atheists. Go, huh? Go ahead. Huh? How, how could, because they rejected the Roman pantheon. They rejected the Roman gods, the whole group of them, and so they were charged with being atheists. Um, secondly, they were charged as being cannibals. And they were, they, it was broadly said that Christians were cannibals. Why would that be? Because they ate the body and drank the blood of Jesus Christ. And that was central to their gathering, so they're cannibals. The third thing that Romans thought broadly about Christians in that day was that they were incestuous. Why? Because they're walking around saying, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. And so, do you see, do you see what the devil can do? And it was with these fallacies that uh, a very negative, critical, persecuting spirit was engendered among the Romans so that when they were used as torches for Nero's party, where they would literally be tied to a post and set on fire to act as torches for his parties, that the Romans thought, well, there you go. They get what they deserve. This is the, this is the, the age or the spirit into which these words are written. And then fourth, by context, this was possibly a baptism message. There are references to baptism in there, and there's references to the water and the effect of water in a way that it would be very likely that this, would have, this could have been used as a message to prepare people who were about to be baptized to be baptized. Because remember what they're doing in being baptized. That they are making a very dangerous public confession of their faith. Yeah, they're signing up to go to heaven. They sure are. But they are also joining the ranks of people who are set fire, who are fed to lions. And so to these people, that's what baptism meant in that day. I think that's a large context of First and Second Peter. The main points, I think first of all, there's a call to righteous living. When Peter, I actually do believe it was Peter who, who wrote this, when Peter preached this sermon, wrote these letters, he was telling people to, to live the life. Don't just, don't just say you believe. Don't just recite. Don't just say the right things. But live the life. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 13 as an example, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. How many of you are looking forward to that day? A big measure of grace poured out on you on that day, right? And he says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Beloved, we have to stop rationalizing our sins. We have to stop this. This nonsense of that that part of the Bible doesn't apply to me. It has to stop. I fear that the American church has become this giant enabling organization. 
that our interest in showing the forgiveness and grace of God is, is, is so wide that we use it as a way of rationalizing sin patterns in our own lives. And Peter says, don't do that. That there's a life to be lived. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. I think a second main point of First and Second Peter is a call to endure suffering. So remember what kind of suffering they're enduring, right? Persecution, death. They're, they're, they're enduring. That, that's what he means when he talks about trials and suffering. And he sounds a little like James from last week, right? Who said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, there's this, there's this series of verses that just lives in my heart. And Peter says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now think of the trials. He said, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And he's just calling, he's calling his hearers to understand that God has purpose in suffering. That God has purpose, a refining power, an opportunity that doesn't exist when we're living a life of ease. I think the third main point of, of, the, of First and Second Peter here is a call to beware of false teachers. In Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. It's a powerful Powerful accusation against false teachers. Look, when you're scrolling through the Christian TV, if something doesn't ring true, keep moving, okay? Amen. Keep moving. You guys, you guys, I'll tell you what. When you get the main and the plane of Scripture mastered, then you can start digging into the deeper stuff, all right? But don't get distracted by all these fancy things that people are saying when it draws you away from personal, passionate devotion to Jesus Christ or causes you to put yourself in the center of some kind of prosperity scheme. Come on. You've read your Bible enough to know that that's false teaching and it's dangerous. You need to move on. Fourth call of First and Second Peter is a call to be ready for the Lord's return. He's coming back. And he says we need to be ready. 
In 1 Peter, for example, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. In uh, 2 Peter, chapter 3, and verse 10, we read, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Those are strong words. And it's a call to be ready. Beloved, are you ready? The Bible says, Watch, therefore, for you don't know the hour that the Lord will come again. Keep watch. So this is the main, these are the main uh, points of, of 1 and 2 Peter, except one, which I've saved for the hot spot, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, which says, but you are chosen people. I, I tried not to make this the hot spot. I really did. I love these two verses so much. I tried to say, Lord, it, there must be another hot spot in here. I'm just going here because I love it. And I was so grateful when the leading of the Holy Spirit was like, that's the spot. That's the spot. For you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, or God's special possession. <laughs> that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. Mercy changes everything, doesn't it? I love this because this is a passage about our collective identity. We talk quite a bit in the church about our individual identity, that you are this. But this is a passage about our collective identity, who we are as the body, who we are as the body of Christ. For it says you are, right? You are a chosen people. This word you is in the plural form. You know how we can use the word you to mean you or you. And yeah, it's the y'all and all y'all, right? We've been over this ground before. And this is the form of the Greek word for you that is all y'all. And so it says all y'all are chosen generation. All y'all are royal priesthood. You've got to think of it this way if you're going to get a hold of this because that's the way it's coming across. It's talking about the collective identity of the body of Christ, and it's, it's important. Because individually, for example, individually, you're a new creation, yes? The Bible says that if any man, and woman slash parentheses, any individual, that's a, that's a you, that's a you. If you are in Christ, then you are a new creation. The old is gone. Bye, old Peggy. <laughs> That's what we say to Peggy, praise God. <laughs> and the new has come. Meet new Peggy. She wears her newness well, doesn't she? People? She wears her newness well. That's individual. Other individual URs in the Bible are you are Carl Weidman, a son of God. Yet to all who received him, you receive him? Those who believed in his name, you believe in his name? He gave the right to become a son of God. That's you, man. Son. Your father's in heaven now. And another you is 
I no longer call you a servant. I call you a friend. Brett, you are a friend of God. Isn't that just mind-blowing? The God of the universe, the God of eternity. says, I, I have a friend in Brett Wood. Those are individual things that apply to us as believers. That's the singular you. The all y'all you is you are a chosen people, for example. A chosen people. You're chosen. Now this may bring to your mind the, the, the argument about the doctrine of election. Does that mean that some are chosen to be saved and some are not chosen to be saved? That may bring it to your mind, but this passage doesn't even touch that because it's not talking about you, Mike. It's talking about all y'all. It says as the body of Christ, you are chosen by God for something. God has picked us. Now the individualization of that is another argument that's been raging strongly since the Protestant Reformation, and I'm sure it will rage on until Jesus comes back. But regardless of your position on the doctrine of election... Every one of us is meant to bear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every person. Because even if you're of a a Reformed theology and believe that some are destined to be saved and some are destined to be lost, you can't tell the difference. And you don't get to decide anyway, right? But that's not what this is about. This says you, all y'all, are a chosen people. You've been chosen by God for something. It's part... It's part of our collective identity. You are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Part of our collective identity is to be a priesthood that bears Christ to the world. So what does a priest do? A priest stands between someone and God, correct? That's what priests do. That's what the Old Testament priests did. They were assigned to bear the the terms of the atonement to the people of Israel. And it says that we are a royal priesthood. Now there can be no doubt from reading our our New Testaments that, that that Jesus Christ is our only high priest. There can be no doubt from reading the Bible that we don't need an earthly priest. You don't need an earthly priest. I am not your priest, for sure. If you need a priest, aim higher. But you don't need a priest. You don't need someone to stand between you and God because the Bible says there is one mediator between man and God, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. And so he is, he is, he is the mediator of, of, of the, the covenant of grace. Now, why are we a royal priesthood then? Because as all us all, I don't know if that works, as all you all, it is ours to bear the gospel to the world. We, are, we stand between God and the world. He said, go into all nations and make disciples of all, nation, of all nations, right? Go, he said. And so we bear the gospel to the world. And this was one of the tenets of the Protestant Reformation, the priesthood of all believers, that you don't need a person in special clothes with a special job. Jesus does that for you. He's wearing the robes of righteousness. His blood is speaking for you. Now I notice, I want you just to point on before we go on, that it's a royal priesthood. It's not just a regular old priesthood. It's a, what does that mean? Well, 
it means that we have the authority of the kingdom. Royal means there's a king somewhere, right? And we have a royal priesthood. Our priesthood is backed up by the authority of God. And what we bear into the world is the kingdom of God. You see, the gospel isn't about persuading people to agree with you about Jesus. The gospel, the pres- evangelism, is about bearing the kingdom of God to the people around you so that the Holy Spirit persuades them to come to Jesus. And as, as royal priests, as part of a royal priesthood, we're out there by the authority of the king. That's part of why I think it's so important that we as believers, when we gather, experience the kingdom. The kingdom in the outpouring of God's power, in, the, in healing and signs and wonders and all the gifts of the Spirit. It's so important that that happen because when we do that, we're experiencing the kingdom. And in that, we're re- refreshed in the authority of the king, right? Say yes or I'll start again. I'm preaching so much better than you're amening. And it's a royal priesthood. It's not a priesthood of poverty. It's not a priesthood of poverty. I don't mean material stuff. I mean the power of God. I mean the riches of Christ. Paul said that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. I don't think that applies at all to the cars we drive or the homes we live in. Knock yourself out. Get a good job. Get what you want. But there's something better, and that's the riches of Christ flowing through you into the world. And our, our, our priesthood is a royal priesthood. It is not a priesthood of poverty. It's a priesthood of authority, kingdom authority. You ever heard that phrase before in this house? And we're a holy nation. You are. This is God saying you are. All y'all are. A holy nation made holy by the blood of Christ. Something's happening. Something happens when we come into the room. How many of you had a 100% holy week? Right on. We need the renewal of the covenant of grace. We didn't lose our salvation, but we need a refreshing of the covenant of grace in us. Hebrews says that by the will of him who gave his life for us, that we are being made holy. We're being made holy. And it's, it's, it's all y'all. It's the body of Christ that's being made holy. So we identify with Christ. He identifies with us. And we're a people belonging to God, it says. You, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. There's a high price. We are God's possession now. We are God's special possession. People belonging to God. We're His. We're His possession. You got stuff? Anybody have stuff? Anybody have treasured stuff? Yeah? Well, that's who we are to God. We are His treasured possession. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We belong to Him. He can do whatever He wants with the body of Christ, right? It's his body. It's his bride. He can do whatever he wants with us. This is a collective identity. Did you notice how it is that we were, became the people of God? Read the next verse, verse 10. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. What's the next line? What made the difference? Mercy. And once you hadn't received mercy and you weren't the people of God, once you came to the cross 
and experienced the mercy of Christ, then you became a part of the body of Christ. Right? Not when somebody tapped you on the head and said, yep, you're one of us now. It's when Christ touched your heart by his blood. And he said, you're one of me now. Okay. Well, the way, the way of the cross leads us to these things, and this becomes our identity that we're a chosen. This is our, our collective identity. And I want you to notice that this verse also tells us why he calls us these things, why he made us this way, that we may what? Read it in verse 9, that we may do something. What is it? Yeah. I don't know if you'll notice, but it helps if you have a Bible open in front of you to answer these questions. <laughs> just a thought. I'm just saying. <laughs> you are these things that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. The purpose of our salvation is to praise him. <laughs> the purpose of our salvation is to get over our inhibitions and worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What an opportunity. What a glorious identity. Church, we're going to praise God in just a moment, but before we do that, I, I, I just I, I feel like as I was walking around my property this morning, as the sun was coming up, the Lord was speaking to my heart. I believe He gave me authority to do something, and I'm going to spend that authority right now. Church, I'd like for you to go ahead and close your Bibles and kind of settle into your spot. This won't take long, but maybe the most important part of what happened for you this morning. And I want you just to settle in. If you want to bow your head, you may. Certainly you don't have to. But, you know, just get yourself as undistracted as possible. And I want you to think about something. Are you an individual Christian or are you a part of the body of Christ? Do you understand your salvation to be like an insurance thing that God made for you? It's got your name on it, and it does. When I read my Bible, I see that God does not write individual policies. He writes your name in the Lamb's book of life next to somebody else's in the midst of billions, perhaps. And I believe there's a terrible thing happening in our country, in the church in America, and it's individualism. I believe Holy Spirit wants to come into this room right now and join you to the body of Christ. Join you. These are your people. They may not have been the people you picked, but they're the people God picked for you. He picked you for them, us. Now, when you can get yourself into that space, in your mind and heart, where you say, I am a part of this fellowship, I am a part of the body of Christ, I am a part of, when you see yourself as an essential, essentially connected to the body, then I want to speak this word over you because I'm speaking it over the church. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. 
you are a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light on your feet, church. Let's praise him. Mm-hmm.